This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Mark Winborn. He received a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Michigan State University in 1982, a Master of Science and PhD in Clinical Psychology from the University of Memphis in 1987, and a Certificate in Jungian Analysis from the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts in 1999. Dr. Winborn served for three years as the staff psychologist for the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York, and is now a training and supervising analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich and for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts in North America. He currently serves on the American Board for Accreditation in Psychoanalysis and the Ethics Committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. Dr. Winborn is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Analytical Psychology and the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, and is a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. He has presented papers at the past three congresses of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and will present again at the Vienna Congress in 2019. Since 1990, he has maintained a private practice in Memphis, Tennessee, where he was the training coordinator for the Memphis Jungian Seminar from 2010 to 2016. In addition to his teaching activities in Memphis and Zurich, he has been an invited presenter for Jungian societies, training seminars, and institutes throughout the United States, as well as in Russia and the Dominican Republic. He is the author of Deep Blues, Human Soundscapes for the Archetypal Journey, published in 2011, and is the editor of the book Shared Realities, Participation Mystique and Beyond, published in 2014. His new book, Interpretation in Jungian Analysis, Art and Technique, will be released on August 8th of this year and is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Sunday, July 1st, 2018, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Winborn, it's so good to talk to you again. Oh, thank you, Laura, and it's great to be back, and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast uh, now since uh, we recorded ours. I think I was number six, right? Yes, we first met back in October of 2015, um, two months after I started the podcast. The Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts held their fall invitational meeting here in Chicago, and I went there and kind of set up and recorded several interviews. And that's when we met for the first time. And then a few months later, I attended the lecture that you presented here in Chicago uh, for the Jung Institute of Chicago on participation mystique on, and your book, Shared Realities. Right. Yes. Here we are again today, about three years later, and you have a new book that is being published by Routledge, and it is available now for pre-order on Amazon. And there will be a link to that on the website. So you open that book with the following statement. You say, during my analytic training, I often wrestled with the question, what distinguishes Jungian analysis from other forms of therapy? Right. 
that was always a thing I was wrestling with, as I mentioned. And, you know, I understood the difference uh, when uh, we were doing dream analysis. And that's, of course, a distinctive feature of Jungian analysis and a particular point of emphasis. But when dream interpretation wasn't being engaged in, I didn't think that the focus uh, of what we were doing as union analysts was very well developed. I want to talk to you first about what psychoanalysis is. People are always hearing me talk about Jungian analysis specifically, but that is just one type of psychoanalysis. Is that right? Right. Psychoanalysis is really a broad umbrella term that often gets associated only with Sigmund Freud. Mm -hmm. And Sigmund Freud was certainly the founder of psychoanalysis, but it's become so much more diverse over the past 120 years uh, that in many ways it's grown more like the style of analysis that Jung espoused. Uh, so Jungian analysis, I think of as a subset of psychoanalysis. And there's other, there's uh, classical Freudian, there's something called object relations therapy, self-psychology, relational psychoanalysis, intersubjective psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis. There's a wide variety of uh, schools of thought about psychoanalysis in general. And there's certainly some differences, but there's some key similarities that all schools of psychoanalysis endorse. Mm -hmm. And you are also a clinical psychologist, and I know that we talked about this on the previous episode that we did together, but if you would just explain briefly the difference between a clinical psychologist and a psychoanalyst... Well, a clinical psychologist is a what's referred to as a terminal degree, meaning it's the highest academic degree that you can receive within psychology. And it's a clinical psychologist is particularly focused on the application of psychology in a treatment setting. Now, uh, a psychoanalyst or a Jungian analyst all typically have a graduate degree of some kind in some field. Typically in the United States, that is psychiatry, uh, psychology, social work, licensed professional counselors, and then a few other uh, mental health degrees. In Europe, there, there's also people that come to psychoanalysis or analytical psychology from a background, for example, in philosophy, uh, one of the sciences, uh, law, things like that. It's harder to do that in the United States because of licensure regulations. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of to think of it as a postgraduate specialization in a particular style of psychotherapy uh, rather than as a degree. A style of psychotherapy, right. So I want to talk about your new book, it is not for, would you say that the new book is not necessarily for the layperson? It is almost like a textbook. Almost, yeah. yeah. Um, so it is intended uh, more directly for practicing psychotherapists and psychoanalysts. Uh, 
of whatever school of thought they belong to, and in particular, Jungian analysts, Jungian psychotherapists. So it's geared that way. I think the person who has an interest in analysis from the lay perspective is interested in what's going on about analysis, why does it work the way it does, will find a number of interesting things in the book, and particularly uh, the, the links between the the process of interpretation and the creative act that we see in poetry, that we see in uh, music, particularly yes. jazz music, all of those things are really in, um, ingrained in the act of interpretation. And so I think there are elements of the book that the uh, knowledgeable lay reader will find interesting mm -hmm. and that will have perhaps even applications to their own life. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to that later when we talk about jargon, but the name of the book is Interpretation in Jungian Analysis. So would you tell us a little bit about what is the interpretive process? What is interpretation? Okay, yeah, it, it's a little bit uh, funny in... Um, Jungian analysis in that we often speak of dream interpretation and most people are pretty clear about what that means, you know, that coming to a psychological interpretation of a dream. And what this book focuses on is not so much the act of dream interpretation. It's actually covered rather briefly in this book. Mm -hmm. What I focus on is the interpretation of the analytic interaction between the patient and the analyst. And so the interpretation, it's often assumed that an interpretation is everything that the analyst says to the patient, and that is not at all the case. There's any number of other kind of verbalizations that occur in a session, but an interpretation has a specific intention behind it. And that intention is to make an unconscious process conscious to the person receiving the interpretation. So, for example, if somebody comes in to my office and engages in a similar pattern of behavior over a course of several sessions, then I make an assumption that that pattern of behavior is meaningful. I reflect on the pattern, and as I come to an understanding of the pattern, I'll bring the patient's attention to that pattern and then offer an interpretation about why that pattern is operating in our sessions the way it does. So I'm assuming that the patient isn't aware of the motivation behind the behavior, but that knowing about it may allow them to know something more about how they operate internally and in interaction with me. It sounds very subjective as far as you as an analyst, what your interpretation of that analysis and there would probably be no two alike. Would you say that? I would say there's patterns to interpretations that there's particularly with certain uh, personality styles, that mm -hmm. some interpretations may sound similar, but you're right, they should be completely different yeah. for each individual. 
they're kind of like snowflakes in a way mm-hmm. that you want the interpretation not to be a dry statement of theory. You want the interpretation to be specific as possible to the individual, to their mood, to their internal state, and to their history, mm-hmm. uh, the knowledge that each of you brings of their history. And so it should resonate both on uh, a cognitive level. There should be a, a sense of understanding but there should also be an emotional resonance when an interpretation is received as though it's a it's received as a statement about that individual. And that's where the art comes in then, right? Exactly. I mean the the, the subtitle of the book is art and technique. So right. there is an art to it. Right, because there's two people uh and the old view of it was that the Analyst was this kind of cold, detached observer who applies theory and then informs the patient of what's going on in their mind, but isn't affected by what's going on. A more contemporary perspective, and this cuts across both analytical psychology, Jungian analysis, Mm -hmm. and psycho, all schools of psychoanalysis, is that both people are in the room together, and to a certain extent, they're both subjectively experiencing the session. And the primary difference is, is that the analyst's job is sitting in that setting uh, and reflecting on what's going on in that setting. So the only difference is, is that perhaps the analyst has more experience in reflecting on their internal state and the patient's internal state than the patient does. So the the analyst can be uh, just as impacted by the session as the patient is, but the analyst simply brings more experience in sitting in that soup with them. And for people who are listening and are not very familiar with Jungian analysis or have not experienced it themselves. What makes it the case that the analyst is not bringing their stuff, um, to use a technical term, their Mm -hmm. stuff into the room? (laughs) Well, that's what separates all types of psychoanalysis from other types of therapy in that our own personal analysis is a requirement in our training. So uh, there are certainly other schools of thought that uh, have some endorsement of psychotherapy as part of the process, but it's a requirement for every school of psychoanalytic thought that you're in your own analysis before you begin training and that that analysis continues throughout your training. So for many of us, that has been decades of our own personal analysis, and many analysts continue their analysis even after they've graduated and received their certificate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and sometimes that's multiple times a week. Sometimes that's once a week. You know, it varies depending on the individual's needs and desires. Uh, my period of analysis went on for nine years. Uh, and so while it doesn't offer a guarantee that we're not going to bring our stuff into the sessions, 
it at least is we've been exposed to what our primary complexes are, what our primary tendencies are, what our inter- interpersonal patterns are, and we bring that knowledge with us. And hopefully, when used ethically, it does prevent some of our own stuff from getting in the way of working with somebody else's stuff. So then if let's talk about a clinical psychologist who does not undergo analysis, what's happening then? What's happening in those sessions when that's different, isn't it? Well, I think it's quite different. And it's not that I don't have colleagues that I know who I respect their work who haven't, uh, who I wouldn't say that nobody can do effective psychotherapy uh, if they haven't had their own personal analysis, but it introduces, increases greatly, I think, the possibility of getting into patterns of misunderstanding, of distortion, of projecting one's own stuff into the patient. So the personal analysis doesn't eliminate that possibility, but it Mm -hmm. decreases that possibility. And I personally wouldn't go to see somebody who hadn't had their own therapy, because if we're if you think of it's a bit commercial to talk about it this way. But if if I'm selling psychotherapy or psychoanalysis as a product and I don't use that product, what does that say about my belief in the product? Right. You know, I my patients should know that I've been in the fire, too, that I've sat on the other side of the couch, that I know what it's like to be vulnerable in that situation. You know, I may not tell them extensively about that, but that's included in uh, the materials I provide them at the beginning of an analysis. So when there are psychologists that are using other forms of therapy, not psychotherapy, not psychoanalysis, what what do they say, what would they say to that then well i would say that i mean it's a completely different philosophy and that most other forms of psychotherapy for example some of the ones that begin with all of these different initials uh, eye movement desensitization response mm-hmm. dialectical behavior therapy cognitive behavioral therapy acceptance and commitment therapy. There's so many of these acronyms now, but all of them largely, from my perspective, are the application of a set of techniques. Mm -hmm. And there's no true philosophy of the human being behind those techniques. And so there's not um, an in-depth consideration of the two individuals present. Now, psychoanalysis assumes that the two human beings present are central to the process. And while there are important techniques to be applied, those techniques are offered within a specific philosophy and with the recognition that we're trying to unpack human experience. And you had said earlier um, about the book is that it's kind of a corrective. What did you mean by that? Well, what happened, you know, we have to put this in a little bit of context. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sigmund Freud's interpretation of dreams was published in 1900. So that's really seen as the first text on psychoanalysis, even though he had some previous 
publications, the theory of psychoanalysis hadn't really crystallized until he published Interpretation of Dreams. Mm -hmm. So Jung and Freud split in 1912-1913 time frame. Now, so psychoanalysis is 12 years old. Right. And Jung needed to differentiate his theories from Freud's in order to make them distinguishable. Mm -hmm. And so he places a great deal of emphasis on the differences, particularly in his early writings, between his form of psychoanalysis and Freud's. Now, that was absolutely necessary for the development and survival of his school of thought. The problem is that uh, in many Jungian circles, uh, they have they've forgotten uh, about what uh, how much psychoanalysis was still in its infancy then. Mm -hmm. And so they take uh, some of Jung's statements almost like gospel and they uh, the psychoanalysis, as I mentioned earlier, has changed dramatically and it doesn't resemble in many ways, the, the psychoanalysis that Jung was exposed to, the, the Freudian version of psychoanalysis that Jung was exposed mm -hmm. to, and the force of Freud's somewhat doctrinaire personality. And so there's this kind of tension, uh, all, at times hostility between psychoanalysis and analytical psychology that I think is rooted in uh, history that occurred over a hundred years yeah. ago mm -hmm. that I think is unfortunate. And I think both uh, sides of the uh, fence can learn a great deal from each other. Analytical psychology, Jungian analysis, brings such a rich uh, relationship to myth, story, narrative metaphor that so much of the training is devoted to really understanding deeply all of these archetypal themes that appear in myths, fairy tales, religions, in alchemy, in contemporary cultural creative products like movies and novels, but they don't have a strong emphasis on the technique of analysis of how it's conducted when not doing dreams. Now, psychoanalysis, most schools of psychoanalytic thought that are not Jungian have a, a pretty strong emphasis on technique, but don't have the same depth of metaphor, relationship to metaphor, mm -hmm. to archetypal themes that analytical psychology does. Now, of course, I'm speaking a bit in stereotypes here, and there's certainly exceptions across the board to all of these statements I'm making. But okay. in general, they hold mm -hmm. pretty true. Um, and so by taking some of the technique of psychoanalysis and placing it in the context of the philosophical heart of the analytic process that analytical psychology has, I think it creates something even more powerful because it creates more avenues for this metaphoric influence of the psyche to move into the analytic process that goes beyond when we're just doing dream work. Yeah, you do speak a lot in the book about metaphors. And my question is how a metaphor is a conscious construct, right? Right. So 
how do they, I don't know, sort of respect unconscious symbols if it's a conscious construct? Well, the notion of metaphor is conscious, but the way metaphor acts is unconscious. Okay. And uh, a couple of uh, authors, uh, philosophers, cognitive scientists, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson write very beautifully about the place of metaphor uh, in our psyches. And number one, metaphor is operating unconsciously, not consciously. It moves us unconsciously. Mm-hmm. So we can recognize a metaphor consciously, but its action is unconscious and it links body, thought, and feeling together. So a really simple uh, example of that is linguistically, on a conscious level, the two sentences, I had a bad day and I had a rough day, linguistically are pretty similar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, the brain which is not the same as psyche, but certainly we need a brain for psyche to operate. Mm -hmm. The brain responds unconsciously very differently to the sentence, I had a rough day, than it does to the sentence, I had a bad day. And they've done experiments with functional MRI uh, technology to demonstrate this difference. And the difference is, is that there's a what's called a somatic metaphor in the second sentence Mm -hmm. in that rough is a texture. And so even if we're just hearing the word rough inside, we're responding to something like, for example, the feel of concrete or the texture of stucco. Those textures we associate with roughness. And actually, the parts of our brains that process texture come alive when we, or activate would be a more appropriate neuropsychological term, uh, when we hear the word rough. And so just that very simple distinction between those two sentences, the change of one word, changes the way we respond to it without any conscious processing of that. And so what do you do with that in analysis with metaphor? Well, what I'm doing with it is I'm not creating metaphors. Uh, I'm listening for the metaphors the patient uses without they're not trying to uh, create metaphor. Metaphor is created in them and then they speak it. And I'm listening for what metaphors they're using. So when somebody, there's all sorts of metaphors everybody uses in a typical day. Right. Uh, you know, the weight of the world is in, on my shoulders. That's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. I hit a brick wall today. That's a metaphor. I'm all wound up. People use these things all of the time. Mm-hmm. And they're, but at the basic core level, they're all a metaphor in that they translate from one domain of experience to another using imagistic symbolic language. Now, what I'm doing, I'm listening for their metaphors, and in some way I'm going to have insights. I'm going to say, oh, 
that's what's going on when I understand the metaphor they're using, and I'll find a way to reflect that metaphor back that deepens their understanding of it. Or there's metaphors that are occurring to me while I'm in session. Mm -hmm. That's part of my what's termed reverie, the kind of flow of imagery, unconscious sensation, bodily sensation, emotion that's going on while I'm sitting with somebody in the background. Now, I'm not going to speak about most of that. But there may be a metaphor that comes up, and in one way or another, I'll incorporate that metaphor into what the patient is saying to me and what I'm saying back to them. I want to talk about reverie in a minute because uh, you mention it in your other books, and you have a whole mm -hmm. chapter on it in this book. But just one more thing about metaphor. I do tend to pay attention to the words people use. I also, when I'm, you know, watching TV or watching a movie or listening to people talk, I just have a thing about words and phrases. And I used to think, oh, that person's just repeating, you know, what their friend said. Well, there's a reason for that. You know what I mean? Using the same phrase or metaphor, like some of the ones you were just mentioning. But there's a reason why we pick those up because we don't pick up everything. Exactly. And that's the same philosophy between behind dream analysis is often people want to come in and say, oh, I dreamed that because I watched this show last mm -hmm. night. Well, that may be true that that show was a stimulus, but they probably saw a hundred other stimuli right. during that day. And yet the dream picked that particular one. It's the specificity of the image. And you're right. We're doing that all of the time of we have selective uh, attention mm -hmm. and that we focus on certain things and we pick up certain things and incorporate them into our language processes. And it is all meaningful. It is meaningful. And when people say, oh, it's just an expression, I want to say, well, no, <laughs> there's a reason why you're using that expression. There's something under it. There's a meaning there, which is difficult to get to, but that's your job, right? Right. But yeah. And well, but part of my job is also to help the patient learn to reflect on yeah. their own patterns. Yeah. And that that's really, uh, apart from the notions like of healing, of getting over something or working through something, people are in, uh, in any kind of analytic process are picking up a particular skill or a particular capacity that is referred to as the reflective function. Uh, and that means being able to think about what one is experiencing and to think about the implications of that and to be curious about that so that when somebody walks away from an analytic process, when they've gotten as much as they feel they need to get from it, they carry that skill with them and that continues even after analysis. There's something that uh, you mentioned in the book. There's a lot of case material in the book. And you had mentioned that um, you, know, you got permission um, from Analysands to use their session material in the book. And there's one part in there where I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but one of your analysis and say, you know, 
feel like we just come in here and we just talk. But I know something's happening. And I remember myself when I was in analysis, being angry sometimes when I would leave my session. And I thought, you know, what, what, what was that? Well, I just sat there and we just talked for an hour, you know, it's like, what, really? Not, what was that? What did I just pay mm-hmm. for? You know, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. Because of course, I was all up in my head and looking at it superficially, but there was a lot going on under the surface. So would you tell that story? Um, yeah, that, that, that particular story about this guy who said, I don't always, uh, know exactly what we're talking about. Sometimes it just seems like we're talking, but when I go home, I know something is different. Yeah. Um, and I, I include that particular story because there's a tendency, uh, in Jungian analysis to think you have to teach for the analyst somehow feeling they have to teach the patient about Jungian concepts like shadow, ego, anima, things like that. And those, those concepts are important for the analyst to have in their mind, but they're not necessarily important for the patient to have. Mm -hmm. It's important for the patient to have their own language about those sorts of processes and somebody can end an, uh, a Jungian analysis or any other kind of analysis and have learned nothing about the concepts, right. but know a great deal more about how those patterns operate in them. Yeah, and it, it's sort of my fear that with this podcast, I wonder sometimes, what am I doing here? Because this is not analysis. And these books written by Jungian analysts are not necessary for people who are in analysis to read. This just for me kind of happened toward the end of my analysis when I became very, very curious about Jung and about these concepts, because we didn't talk about them during our sessions. We didn't talk about Jung's concepts or even Mm -hmm. Jung. That's not what this is about. So in your book, and I was actually tweeting about it this morning, you talk about jargon and how you don't use jargon during sessions. Mm-hmm. So would you say a little bit about that? Because that's something that's been bothering me that I wanted to discuss on the podcast. Well, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I've kind of said my piece about that just now is that uh, jargon concepts are a conceptualization and conceptualization doesn't change people experience changes people so when we feel something deeply emotionally and we feel connection and intimacy when it's being said that's what changes people not intellectual understanding that's that you know that's a useful secondary effect so that people can remember why something is happening the way it is. But in general, that's not what changes people. But I do think that things like this podcast uh, are important because they help stimulate people's curiosity about their internal processes. Yeah. And whether it's analysis, whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, um, curiosity is at the heart of human experience. 
so much so that uh, another psychoanalyst, Melanie Klein, gave it a, ter- a name, and she called it the epistemophilic drive or epistemophilic instinct. And what that means is the tendency to be curious about and want to understand ourselves and our surroundings. Mm-hmm. And that's what all these books are for. Right. Yeah. To stimulate curiosity, whether they're intended for a lay audience uh, and, you know, somebody like James Hollis is marvelous about writing those sorts of books that he can speak about weighty issues, mm-hmm. but speak about it in an accessible way. And then other books uh, are intended more for the analysts themselves to either deepen, refine, uh, or otherwise develop their own analytic process. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that's what uh, this book in particular tries to do is uh, give analysts and psychotherapists a way of reflecting on how they do analysis and whether there's refinement or deepening of that that can go on. On how they do analysis, yes. And I think you had mentioned in the in the introduction that a book like this has not really been written in English, that this is kind of the first of its kind. So, Right. It's absolutely the first book on interpretation in the Jungian framework Mm -hmm. that's been written. And there are other books from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, but not from a Jungian perspective. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the other chapters in the book. Um, You do bring up poetry and music. And the, like I had mentioned earlier, the concept of reverie, would you speak a little bit about those? Well, the, yeah, I'll, I'll speak about those each kind of separately. Um, the, the notion of poetry is really the meta. Again, I'm speaking in a metaphor mm-hmm. here. Uh, the notion of poetry is really, I think, the closest thing we get to what the analyst is trying to do interpretively. So the poet has an experience, and they want to capture that experience. And so they, they sit, sit with it, reflect on it, and they try to capture some essence of it, of what they experienced, and then co- attempt to communicate it in a way to the reader, which is a very difficult thing to do of taking a very intimate personal experience and then speaking in a way speaking about it in a way that the reader grasps it but the thing with poetry is it's not all said directly if it was then it would be prose not poetry so in poetry we speak obliquely we speak inferentially about things. And often that's the way the interpretation is framed is just a little bit off of the direct line Mm -hmm. so that it leaves room for the patient to respond to it without it being nailed down right from the beginning. So the poet carefully weighs the words, the way the words are arranged, how the words fit together, the emotional connotation of the words, and whether it captures but refers to that unknown third thing that can't be fully described even in the poem. Musically, I think interpretation is very close to the act of jazz improvisation. 
Now, jazz uh, improvisation has to have a little bit of structure to it, and that structure is typically provided by the underlying chords that the musicians have agreed to improvise over. So these things called jazz standards, autumn leaves, for example, is one, has a particular chord structure that most jazz musicians know. And so they can play those chords, and then all of the musicians that are involved are going to improvise over those same chords. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be making statements, though, to each other within that improvisation. When they're not improvising, they're listening to the other musician about what's being said, and then they're trying to formulate a response to it, both consciously and unconsciously. So interpretation is not just the analyst saying something to the patient. It's about listening in both directions, the analyst and the patient listening to each other, and that something comes up out of that. The analyst says something, the patient says something in response, the analyst may modify the interpretation, they may acknowledge that, oh, I was a bit off there, wasn't I? I didn't get this piece about such and such that was so important to you. So there's this ebb and flow, this riffing back and forth that takes place particularly in jazz music that also takes place in analytic improvisation. And that takes time. And that takes time. And learning each, Yes. And learning to know the other person that's sitting with you. Yeah. And then what, what was the third thing? Uh, reverie. Reverie. So, yeah, ideally, the patient and the analyst will both be in reverie. And what that means is there's enough space, psychological space, for both of them to go into themselves while they're sitting with each other. What do you mean by that, into themselves? To be able to both carry on a dialogue and to uh, observe both visually and uh, auditorially and somatically what's going on. So I might find myself thinking about something the patient said six months ago, and the patient while we're talking, may be thinking about something that happened 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, those, let's just boil it down to three levels of influence. So there's what's going on between us. That's one level, the most surface level. Mm-hmm. There's what I'm thinking about, which is six months ago. And there's what the patient is thinking about 30 years ago. And again, this is simplifying, but those three things together then form kind of an amalgam, a mix mm-hmm. that blends together. And at, on some level, I'm going to find something to say or not to say about that. The patient may have things they choose to say or choose not to say about that. But that all becomes part of the mix that we're in together. And so we're really creating a third thing that goes beyond them and myself that is part that's coming out of growing out of this analytic process that we're both engaged in. Now, sometimes, you know, I feel 
dull or whatever in my interior process, and I'm not able to get into that reverie. Sometimes patients come in that don't have much capacity to go to that place, that it even might be kind of frightening. Some patients come in and say something like, I'm afraid to look inside. I'm afraid of what I might find there Mm -hmm. when I look inside. Now, they're making a statement both about their fear, but about what it's like inside and that what's inside is unfamiliar. And so those patients have less capacity to enter into reverie with me. And the goal would be over time through the example rather than the instruction. In other words, I'm not going to tell them how to be in reverie, but through engaging with them in a particular process and saying sometimes aloud, oh, what you're saying makes me think of this then I'm articulating something about a reverie process. And over time, when things are going well, that reverie process gets internalized by the patient and it becomes something that they have available to them, like that reflective function I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you also mentioned the analytic third. Is that what you were referring to here? Right. That's the analytic third, that thing that emerges out of the mix of the two people, that it doesn't really belong to either one of them individually. And that's important then. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that you can always see it, but it's always going on in one way or another. Is that a goal for that to emerge? I would say that that emerges when analysis is going well. Okay. Yes. When it's going well. And You also mention in the book that I don't think we've gotten to very much here is the body. Right. And that's, uh, you know, analysis isn't going on uh, just in the head. Mm -hmm. Analysis is going on on an emotional level and it's going on on the on a body level or what we refer to as the somatic. Mm -hmm. And Jung was very clear Uh, that there was uh, a somatic, what he called a somatic unconscious, and that at the deepest level, the unconscious was the body. That there were what he referred to as dark places, and the the darkest place, or perhaps you could say the most unknown place, is the body. Sometimes he referred to it as the subtle body. And so this notion that interpretation is a cognitive, rational process is uh, just not accurate. Uh, What happens uh, is that the body has experience, and then the body pressures the mind to create words for that experience. And often those words are related, interestingly, uh, to things like uh, emotion and uh, geographical space. Uh, so, for example, I'm feeling up today, you know, a geographical direction, or I'm feeling down today. These are direct responses in language of demands from our body to represent things in language. So language doesn't really emerge out of the mind. It emerges out of the body. 
That's interesting because the way I got into Jungian analysis is through body work. Mm -hmm. I was seeing a Heller work practitioner Mm -hmm. and I went through the whole series of Heller work and it was amazing. I, I really benefited from a lot. And then I went and did the advanced, not class, but the, the advanced sessions. And when that was over, I, so much stuff came up, you know, I didn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. And there just so happened to be a Jungian analyst in training in that office. So that's how I got into Jungian analysis is through body work. Um, and then it was just kind of this natural progression into, into analysis. But that's interesting that you mentioned that Jung said that the unconscious is the body because I just want to mention something very briefly out there for people who are familiar with remote viewing. The conduit um, to get the information for remote viewing is through the body. And I think it was in Heller work that I learned that expression, nothing in the body lies. Right. Or one of the uh, contemporary researchers, writers uh, on trauma, Vonderkolk, mm-hmm. uh, the, the title of his book is The Body Keeps Score, mm. you know, meaning that the body is registering these experiences yeah. even when we don't have a conscious memory of it. Right. Where we've dissociated it or repressed it to such an extent that it the memory of the experience isn't available. So now do you look at body language? Is body language something that you consider? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I had this uh, one particular patient who came in and she was so elegant in the way she walked, in the way she uh, sat. It all looked very careful, almost like a ballerina. Uh, so precise in her movements. And there was something elegant and beautiful about it, but there was also something rather uh, overly controlled about it, too. And so after a number of months watching this and kind of pondering it, uh, I, I think I write about this in the book, that I reflected back to her my observation about this contrast that there's something very elegant about the way she moved, but also something somewhat tight. And she said, well, it's interesting you mention that because I have this feeling of tightness in my mind all of the time. It's like a spring that never unwinds. Well, and we didn't really do much directly with that, but over time, her posture And her way of moving in the world started to relax. Mm -hmm. So that that that's an example, uh, you know, of just how, uh, you know, the awareness of the body might come into the room, and it might come in through a sensation in my body or something I observe in somebody else's body. You know, if their throat tightens when they talk about a particular subject, like their father or their mother, well, there. You know, there, there's a physical metaphor going on there, a, mm-hmm. a, a metaphor of constriction. So there's something in their throat in particular that sounds tight when they speak about it. Uh, or somebody might, they might mention it themselves like, oh, I feel like I've got such a weight on my chest. Well, that's both language, but it's also languaging a physical sensation that's associated with whatever they're talking about. 
And so you look at that symbolically. Right. It's just like Jung's notion of what he called the association experiment, mm -hmm. where he presented all of these, uh, these, this list of words to people, and then they would respond. And there were a variety of what he called complex indicators uh, that would indicate that the word, the stimulus word itself had stirred something in the person who was taking the association experiment test. And all of these body things are like complex indicators. The patient may not know what's going on. I may not know what's going on initially, but they're signaling something that's occurring in the body in response to the subjects that are being discussed consciously. I noticed that you call your analysis patients. Is there a difference between a client, a patient, and an analysand, or is that just a personal preference? Well, it's somewhat of a personal uh, preference. Mm -hmm. uh, an analysand specifically refers to somebody who is in analysis. Right. But you could just as easily call them a patient. Okay. Jung was a, a medical doctor, and yeah. so he referred to his the people he saw as patients. Uh, and for me, patient evokes a healing relationship. That's my connotation with it. It's not a derogatory or a inferior way of referring to somebody as being in an inferior position. It, it connotes the healing relationship. For me, mm -hmm. client, I think of bankers as having clients, okay. as car salesmen as having clients that though, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things, but it's a, it's a mercantile, uh, a, a, a term from commerce, not a term from the act of healing or transformation. And so I prefer not, I don't like the term client. I don't use it. If, if my patients choose to refer to, to themselves as a client, that's fine. But for me, I don't like the connotations of it. I like the word patient because it sounds like patience. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me that you must be patient with yourself and with the process um, in order right. to heal. Yeah. Right. Murray Stein refers to analysis as the long meditation. Yeah. And of course, any long meditation requires patience. Yes, indeed. Indeed, it does. Well, um, we're just about out of time. And I was wondering if there was anything else about the book or, or anything else that you'd like to talk about. Well, you know, I just like to say about this book that yeah. for me, it really crystallizes my experience in my work as an, an analyst. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first two books, they were certainly important to me. The blues book, blues and jazz are a particular love of mine. And so I was delighted to get the blues book out there. I'm I was, I am and was interested in the concepts of shared realities and participation mystique that led to the second book. But in terms of kind of crystallizing uh, my thoughts, my work as an analyst and providing something that I think is very unique uh, and much needed w within the analytical psychology community this book, uh, Interpretation in Jungian Analysis, really captures 
my my 31 years as a psychologist, my 20 years as a psychoanalyst, uh, in a way that I'm quite proud of and uh, delighted that it's uh, about to emerge. It's um, a huge body of work. It will be released on August 8th of this year, 2018, and it is available now for pre-order. There'll be links to all of Dr. Winborn's books on the website. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Winborn. Well, thank you, Laura, for having me back. And I enjoyed our first conversation and this one as well. And I, I thank you for your contribution to making ideas about Jung and Jungian analysis more available to a wider audience. And I, you know, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I'm always interested to see how people respond to your different posts and how much interaction is going on around that. Yes. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you being part of this podcast. It really means a lot. With that, uh, I'd like to encourage everybody to please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. So with special thanks to Charlie Arthur, Whitley Strieber, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young. Speaking of Young.